Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet's good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but I'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. This is you. Get a few friends to join you. If this isn't you, I'll bet you got a few friends with you in that position. So start a group, a Word Diet group. Help them get into the great Word of God. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the book of Ephesians, my favorite book on Christian theology and practice. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Now we're in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, which means we're at the end of Paul's famous and great prayer at the end of Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14. And it also means we're at the end of the first half of Ephesians, which runs from chapters 1 through 3. We'll talk about that more as we move into the pivot verse of chapter 4, verse 1, and introducing Paul's key theme that opens up that second half. Let me read these two verses, verse 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I love John Stott when he has a commentary available, and he's got a great one on the book of Ephesians. And for this section, he plays with seven of the words that are available to him in the translation that he's focusing on. And so I would encourage you to do the same. This is coming out of the end of Paul's magnificent prayer that starts in verse 14. He's been praying that they would know experientially the power that is within the believer, and that is utterly essential as we move into the second half. But this is Paul's glorious conclusion to a great prayer. And so I encourage you to pray and meditate on each word and phrase in Paul's conclusion here in the last two verses. One key word is rendered far more abundantly in the NIV, and it's what Stott refers to as a super superlative. I don't know Greek, but I can tell when the English translators are working hard to talk about a word and translate a word that is difficult to translate, maybe even something Paul made up, but something that indicates a concept that is overflowing, and that's what we have here. So the far more abundantly is such a key phrase here. Again, looking back to the first half of Ephesians and looking forward to the second half of Ephesians. The phrase within us also, I think, is really important here. And in context, it's both an individual within us and a corporate within us. Think about how much he's been talking about Jew-Gentile unity in the church, and our impact out there starts within us. We get focused on those externals pretty quickly, but Paul is quick to say here, as he wraps things up, that it's the within us that we need to be more focused on. We also see, as the general observation about these two great verses, is that whatever God calls us to do, we are given exceedingly abundantly above all the power we could hope or ask for. 
So if you break that down, it's that God knows what we need, he can provide it, and he wants to and will. If we make ourselves available to that power, it's going to be at work within us. And this is absolutely necessary for what's coming in the second half of Ephesians. In chapters 4 through 6, we're called to a lifestyle that is utterly ridiculous in our own strength apart from the Holy Spirit. It's through him, it's through the Spirit, through Christ in us, through the grace and power of God within us, that people can produce lives and things that are utterly supernatural. Even many of the mundane things in life can gain extraordinary meaning and power through what we're talking about here, the power working within us. Maybe it's washing dishes next to our wife, or it's raking leaves next to a stranger, or it's being kind to the janitor at work in a way that reflects on the glory of God through the power of the Spirit. And with that, the glory goes to the church and to God, as we read about in verse 21. Another great expression of this is in Romans eleven thirty six: For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. A.W. Tozer, The Pursuit of God, is one of those books that you can easily read once a year and have it make a great impact on your life. But I like what he says that's relevant here. To most people, God is an inference, not a reality. He's a deduction from evidence which they consider adequate, but remains personally unknown to the individual. For millions of Christians, God is no more real to them than he is to the non-Christian. They go through life trying to love an ideal and be loyal to a mere principle. Over against all this cloudy vagueness stands this clear spiritual doctrine that God can be known in personal experience. A loving personality dominates the Bible walking among the trees of the garden and breathing fragrance over every scene. Always a living person is present, speaking, pleading, loving, working, and manifesting himself whenever and wherever his people have the receptivity necessary to receive the manifestation. Two last thoughts as we bring this section to a close. First of all, with respect to this great prayer that runs from verses 14 through 21 in chapter 3, put yourself in it. This is not original to me, but it's been said many times that we should pray these verses and insert our own name into it and reflect on what that means in our daily life. And the second observation is that we have here a glorious climax to this first half in worshiping God. And in a way, it would be like being with Christ at the Mount of Transfiguration, and do you remember Peter's response in Mark 9? He wants to build some tents. He wants the moment to last forever. And I think that's the way we look at the end of Ephesians 3. We might not have been all that familiar with it. We usually focus on the second half of Ephesians. But you get to the end of Ephesians 3 and you're like, can't we just camp here? Can't we just build some tents and hang out here? But after the Mount of Transfiguration, they had to come down from the mountain. And that's really where we're going with the second half of Ephesians. The first half of Ephesians is utterly important. It's a great place to be. It's a place where we sit and relax, so to speak, in our identity, in our purpose, in the vision that God lays out for us, the greatness of our salvation as individuals, and as to the corporate church, especially with respect to Jew-Gentile unity. But ultimately, there's places other than that that we have to go. And so we're called to come off the mountain, to live in a wicked and perverse world, to lead others up the same mountain, to mix and mingle with those who don't now belong to the kingdom or are not comfortable in its goodness, as light in the darkness bringing glory to Christ. So now it's time for Ephesians 4.1. 
Paul writes there, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And for the rest of this segment, I want to focus on the word therefore and how it links the two. There's so much to be said about linking the first and second half of Ephesians. Everything we're about to do in the coming weeks and episodes will come completely from and be rooted in Ephesians 1 through 3. We see similar parallel transitional language from Paul in Romans 12.1. And a lot of times we'll read verses like this out of context, and that's fine. It's not causing a lot of trouble, but especially when we're trying to read and understand the book, to understand these pivot verses and to see the connections Paul is making is utterly important as well. So with chapters 1 through 3, we've really come full circle. We started with chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, what Paul described as every spiritual blessing, what God the Father, Son, and Spirit have done in our redemption and our position and the available provisions we have in Christ. And then it wrapped up with Paul's prayer that our knowledge of the blessings of our identity would be matched by our experience. This is not just a head thing, but a heart thing. It's not just intellect, but intimacy and influence over our lives. There are things to know theologically, but ultimately they also have to be experienced. And then what else is in chapters 1 through 3? The things in the middle, Paul prays that they would know these things at the end of chapter 1, and that it would manifest as a power to love at the end of chapter 3, And then everything in between is talking about a community of unified believers from chapter 2, verse 1 through chapter 3, verse 13. Again, Paul's great emphasis on the mystery of Jew-Gentile unity. And Paul's going to continue to pick up those themes of what it looks like for individual believers and for the community of unified believers to live out this faith. So in moving from chapters 1 through 3 to chapters 4 through 6, we're moving from heavenly privileges to earthly practice, from resources to responsibilities, from our wealth to our walk, from doctrine and theology to experience and application, from following to flowing. And the responsibilities are determined by the identity. When I become a father, I'm never babysitting my kids. That's the wrong language. I'm a father to the kids. And that comes from fathering the kids, right? Either by birth, pregnancy, or adoption. And so it's becoming a father that determines those responsibilities. In light of chapters one through three, responsibilities flow from that. And this is very different from the Old Covenant and the Old Testament's emphasis on obedience. And then God says, I will bless you. There's a bit of a formula there which causes some trouble as God is developing obedience and character and holiness in his people. There's this explicit formula many times between obedience and blessing. The New Covenant, the New Testament, the angle changes. It's now, I have blessed you. In the grace of God, I have blessed you. Now do what's in your best interest and follow me. Eugene Peterson describes all this as a transition from getting the story right to getting our lives right. And when he says story, I think we could insert words like theology and theory. C.S. Lewis says we're all theologians, and paraphrasing him brutally here, basically the interesting question is whether we're good theologians or bad theologians. We all have ideas of God. How good are our ideas of God? As I explained to my students, we're all theoreticians. We all have theories, we all have worldviews, we all have lenses through which we see the world. 
adding more facts to garbage theory is not going to make you a lot sharper. In fact, it may make things worse. You may become more dogmatic in your errors. And so the action is at the theory level, the worldview level. Get your theories right and you'll understand the world a lot better. For Christians, get your theology right. For non-Christians as well. We need to get our story right, our theology right, our theory right. And that's what chapters 1 through 3 has been about. Now, the negative version of the same comment is that it's foolhardy and problematic to try to live out chapters 4 through 6 without chapters 1 through 3. There's a number of problems that usually follow this. For example, we're missing out on all the great things implied by chapters 1 through 3. And there's a variety of behavioral and thought problems that usually follow it as well. Maybe we see the Christian life as cloistered and sheltered. Maybe we experience cheap grace church without community. As an individual, maybe we're spiritually bloated. We have a feed-me mentality of the consumer rather than feeding others. Without a proper understanding of what's going on in chapters 1 through 3, then chapters 4 through 6 is going to end up many times in perverted and counterfeit versions of what Christ is calling us to. The largest of these issues is that you will probably be unable to do chapters 4 through 6 without chapters 1 through 3, at least doing it well. It will descend into duty, legalism, a focus on externals. You'll be exhausted. You will lack joy. You'll make comparisons to others and so on. And over the long run, it's bound to wither over time. We see an example of this with the prodigal son story, which is really about two sons. And in Luke 15, verses 29 and 31, we have the story of the eldest son and how he's been doing all the right things, more or less, apparently, for the wrong reasons. And it's gotten him into a terrible place. At least the prodigal son returns, but we're not sure what happens with the elder son. Does he ever return to the love and grace of God? My pastor in Texas used to tell a story of a poor Mediterranean family moving to the U.S. by ship and they're given bread and cheese as gifts at a going-away party. On the ship, they stay in their room a few days, and the son asks to walk around. The father eventually consents, but warns him to stay out of trouble, and the son doesn't return for some time, and he returns with food, eating, extremely happy, observing that, Dad, all this food comes with a ticket. And so for a few days, this proverbial family had been missing it. They had all these resources available to them, but they were living as cheese and cracker Christians, so to speak. There's a feast available to them in chapters 1 through 3, but they don't avail themselves of it. They rely on their own resources. They rely on the paltry resources of the world and the flesh, and they're missing out on the great resources that they've been given in chapters 1 through 3, and therefore their ability to live out the great commission and the great calling that come in chapters 4 through 6. This seems to be what happens to the church at Ephesus in the next generation. We get to read about that in Revelation 2, 2 through 5, and the first of the seven letters to the churches in John's great revelation. When you read their great works in verses 2 through 3, by the way, there's seven of them. That's fitting because they were complete, perfect in terms of works. But think about the rebuke, which is so stunning in verse 4. I have this against you, that you have abandoned your first love. And the answer to that is not more of the sort of things you read about in Ephesians 4 through 6, but returning to Ephesians 1 through 3. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the things you did at first. Return back to those basic first principles that are so vital. And that's what we see here in Ephesians 1 through 3 as it leads into 4 through 6. 
Now, in a sense, you really can't separate the two halves. The dynamics of chapters one through three's knowledge and experience go with chapters four through six's opportunities. There's a dance here between the two halves, that we get stronger at one and we invest in the other, and that feeds back into our understanding of those resources in the first place. So we're tearing them apart and talking about them as two separate halves to make a point, but in reality, there is a dance, a dynamic between the two in the Christian life to be lived out. All right, let's take a break here. Please check out Proclaim from Pure Radio, Kentuckiana's Christian Community Bulletin, available online at pureradio.org. And with paper editions in store at 200 locations, please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we did chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 of Ephesians and started into a transition for chapters 4 through 6. We continue that transition in this segment. Let's reread chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The new NIV is uncharacteristically bulky here. I like the old NIV, the idea of living a life or walking a walk worthy of God's calling. I like what Watchman Nee says here. Paul proceeds in the light of our heavenly calling to challenge us upon the whole field of our relationships, both domestic and public, addressing himself to neighbors, to husbands and wives, to parents and children, employers and employed, all in a most realistic way. Let us be clear that the body of Christ is not something remote and unreal to be expressed only in heavenly terms. It is very present and practical, finding the real test of our conduct and our relations with others. For while it is true we are a heavenly people, it is no use just to talk of a distant heaven unless we bring heavenliness into our dwellings and offices, our shops and kitchens, and practice it there. It will be without meaning." And we'll certainly see that as we go through the second half. Now let's break down verse 1. The phrase, as a prisoner for the Lord, we've already talked about in chapter 3, verse 1. He repeats it here. The word urge is very strong to beg, plead, or beseech. It's a legal term as if to offer evidence that would stand up in court. Paul is using the strongest possible language to encourage this opening and, of course, then what follows. The idea of walking a walk is interesting. It's not running, and it's not sitting or standing, the key verbs in the first half of Ephesians and the last part of Ephesians. Remember, it's sitting that's the key verb in chapters 1 through 3, and that speaks properly to our resources and our identity. We rest or sit in those. Now we're talking about walking, but it's not running either. It's a walk. It's something slow and steady, and it's not the same as the key verb at the end of chapter 6 with the armor of God, the verb there is stand, and that's in opposition to attacks that we're receiving. But here, from chapter 4, verse 1 to chapter 6, verse 9, walk is the operative verb throughout. And walking implies a goal, a strategy. It implies stamina. It's something everyone can do, so that's pretty cool, most of us at least. And walking also allows some other interesting pictures. We can disable ourselves through uh, accidents that happen to us. We can be wounded. Uh, We can have little problems like rocks in our shoes, or we can sprain our ankles. And so walking, uh, even for the disabled, say through a wheelchair, we can make the sort of pace, the steady pace as implied 
by walking. And that's what Paul has in mind here. Not the sprint of a hundred yard dash, but the walk of a long walk. The Christian life is much more a marathon than a sprint. And then the verb and the noun put together to live a life, to walk a walk, implies a, a lifestyle. The King James Version calls it a vocation. And ultimately, this walk or life is in our best interest. We have choices of the sorts of life we're going to lead. And Paul here is encouraging us to choose a certain kind of life. I think this also implies, with respect to evangelism, most people have already heard, maybe not so much in a post-Christian era, but many have not seen the reality of Christ's presence. This is the idea of lifestyle evangelism and loving where you are. The story is told of a preacher who's working with a hammer and a boy walks over to watch. The pastor asks if he wants to help or wants advice or something. And the boy just says, no, just wanted to see what a preacher would say if he hit his thumb. And the fact is people are watching to see what's going to happen when life hits our thumb with a hammer. How are we going to respond to that? People want to see what it's like to live a life, to walk a walk. They want to see the consistency of that. And then with that, they'll want to hear what we have to say. And the last phrase of interest is worthy of the calling. Greek word here is axios, and it literally means equal weight. And the idea here is to balance the scales. And of course, in context, that means a balance between the calling of chapters 1 through 3 and the conduct that Paul's going to describe in chapters 4 through 6. We're called to a lifestyle that balances the scales between what we are equipped to do, chapters 1 through 3, and what we actually do in chapters 4 through 6. I'm putting it another way that's quite sobering and exciting. We have extraordinary resources, but the worthy actions, therefore, are also extraordinary, even when they're merely ordinary or mundane. They can be done in a way that is extraordinary and in line with the tremendous resources we have received in chapters 1 through 3. Back to chapter 3, verse 18, how long, high, wide, and deep is Christ's love for us? And by extension, how long, high, wide, and deep is my love for other people? As we go through life, the most compelling explanation for the things we do, the energy in which we do them, the excellence of our word, deed, thoughts, and motives is the power of the living God, living through the resources that are granted to us in chapters 1 through 3. And our lights can be especially bright against a dark background, culture that is going downhill, or circumstances in our own life. 1 Peter 2.12 says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. From Ephesians and elsewhere, we know that the means to this sort of supernatural lifestyle for individuals is complete dependence on God through the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The cause and effect of that verse is walking by the Spirit and therefore, and that causation is always the same, whether we're talking about staying out of trouble or doing extraordinary things through the power of God. In 1 John 2, 6, John writes, Whoever claims to live or abide in him must walk as Jesus did. And how did Christ do that? In utter dependence. I think two of the most staggering verses in the Bible are John 5.30. Christ says, I can do nothing on my own because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then John 15.5, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides or lives in me and I in him, he is the one that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
And so it's an utter dependence through the Spirit on our identity and resources in Christ that set the table for us doing what Paul talks about here. Live a life, walk a walk, worthy of the calling we've received. Lord, may it increasingly be so. Time to take a break. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. In the previous segment, we started into our introduction to the second half of Ephesians. We detailed the great pivot verse, chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to live a life, walk a walk, worthy of the calling you have received. And we also talked about how chapters 4 through 6 follow chapters 1 through 3, not just in terms of how the letter lays out, but necessarily, logically, that the theology, the resources of chapters 1 through 3 leads to the lifestyle and the responsibility of chapters 4 through 6. So we are moving towards the particular topics that Paul is developing, and the first of those is unity. We wrapped up by saying that the means to a supernatural lifestyle in Ephesians and elsewhere for individuals is complete dependence on God through the Holy Spirit. In a way, the second half of Ephesians is about the components and evidences of that sort of supernatural lifestyle. And those are covered throughout chapters 4 and into chapter 6, verse 9. Key verb here is walk. And this is distinct from the key verb in chapters 1 through 3, which is sit, and the key verb in chapter 6, verse 10, to the end, which is stand. And this is the Watchman Knee book, the classic little book on Ephesians called Sit, Walk, Stand, on those three verbs. So what are the key topics within the walk that Paul wants to talk about? And to summarize them, I'd say it's unity, purity, and love. And his first topic is unity in the church. It's going to take up a huge chunk here in Ephesians, and it's the first thing he talks about. It's also evidently important from other writings that he has. For example, Philippians 2, 1 and 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. It's really important to Paul that we pursue unity. It's also the last thing that Jesus talks about in John 17. I'll read that passage later. So what's the big deal? Well, what is it? We want to talk about these things. It's a body where people care for, respect, love each other, independent of race and class, as Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, and 13, race, class, and gender, as Paul mentions in Galatians 3, 28, and race, religious practice, culture, and class, as he mentions in Colossians 3, 11. We know from the ministry of Jesus that the Jew-Samaritan distinction was very important. And those are key categories for all times, but don't take it too literally. The general idea is that anything that can divide us, maybe it's politics, maybe it's sexuality, maybe it's occupation or allegiance to sports teams, none of those things should divide us. All those things should be superseded by Jesus and our love for, for Christ, life in the Spirit, and so on. And remember that Paul has emphasized in Ephesians 2 and 3 the mystery and the importance of the capital C church and the local church. Of course, Paul will be focusing on unity within the church, capital C, and the local church, rather than what we would think of first, probably, which is denominational unity. And that's also an important issue, but it is an extension or application of what Paul is talking about here. The term Protestant means to protest, and it assumes something that should be protested. But still, we have to be careful here. Carl Truman says, The ease with which contemporary Protestants accept fragmentation and disunity is remarkable. 
It is a distinct difference from the attitude of the Reformers, for whom the shattering of the Church's unity was, initially at least, an incomprehensible and unexpected tragedy. So Paul's first topic is unity. His second topic is purity in the church, and that ranges from chapter 4, verse 17 to chapter 5, verse 21. And then third, the emphasis is on love, particularly in marriage, parenting, and employment, but those, again, shouldn't be taken too literally. They're emblematic of all relationships that we have. Another way to think of the organization is unity, which is one people, the new man, which is a key focus later in Ephesians 4, to live like and to be in the light, to submit to one another, that's the key verb as we continue through chapter 5 and into chapter 6, and then standing and putting on the full armor of God in the second half of Ephesians 6, to be strong in the Lord and in the Spirit. In a word, unity says we should be one people, purity says we should be a holy people, and love says we should be an effective, impactful people in the world around us. Along with Ephesians 2.3, John Stott describes it as going from the new society to the new standards expected of it. Because it's such an important topic and because it's not often well understood and there's potential for confusion, we want to spend a considerable amount of time talking about what unity is and what it is not. Let's start with what it is not. I've got five points to make here. First, unity is not equality. Equality is an important concept. Equality speaks to unity. There is a Venn diagram relationship between the two. If there's no equality, It's hard to imagine how you have unity, but they're not equivalent concepts. Second, unity is not unanimity or uniformity. In fact, it implies some sort of tension within issues or context, personalities, various struggles, perhaps between gifting and roles, as Paul himself will wrestle with later in chapter 4. It reminds me of the relationship between courage and fear. If there's nothing to fear, then why are we talking about courage? If there's no element of tension, why are we talking about unity? I think we can go further than that to note that unanimity is often suboptimal. For example, it's boring. John Stott says this unity is not to be misconstrued as a lifeless or colorless uniformity. We're not to imagine that every Christian is or should be an exact replica of every other as if we had all been mass-produced in some celestial factory, far from being boringly monotonous, it is exciting in its diversity. And unanimity often implies that we're giving up our individuality. C.S. Lewis said, heaven will have much more variety than hell. We've already cited verses that Paul writes about, about the beautiful diversity of the church. We see the same thing modeled in the book of Revelations as well. Back to C.S. Lewis, his book, The Great Divorce, which is excellent reading, by the way. The occupants of hell are different, but largely they're the same. The variety is greater in heaven. The beauty, the majesty of not just the, the creation that's there, but the people inhabiting it is much greater as Lewis depicts it. Unanimity is often less effective. Think of the body metaphor that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 12. If we're all elbows then we're not going to be a very good body. Many times, unanimity is weaker and more brittle. Think about the difference between steel and iron. And in in terms of how churches function, unanimity is often a bad sign, given the many gray areas that we in fact have within theology and practice. 
there are and always have been areas where we can disagree. And if you don't see any disagreement in a body of believers, that is odd and probably a sign of lack of health, not health. Again, there's a balance here. Philippians 4.2 says, agree with each other in the Lord. And the fact of the matter is that unity is much more impressive and it's based on love, respect, the one another's of scripture that are talked about so often where unanimity requires forcing others to conform or kicking others out, hardly the heartbeat of Christian community. The church at Sardis in the book of Revelation was so dead that it was threatened neither from the outside by the devil or from the inside by heresy. Or think of the church in Laodicea, which is so lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. And so you get the impression that God wants some hot and cold. Maybe a little heresy would be better than a dead church, at least. So unanimity in the wrong things is often a very bad sign. And we see this in ourselves. How do you grow? Well, it implies that you weren't so good at something in the past, and so you get better at it. So progress implies dynamics, implies growth, and that implies some interesting things, not unanimity, plainness, static. There's development. There's something to a process of individual growth, and that will be reflected in our churches. And God models this for us as well, from the Trinity with its three persons of the Godhead to the value of a diverse creation and four gospel accounts. Often the four gospel accounts are considered a weakness, but to the Christian view, this is actually a strength that there are four different views instead of one single view. We'll see in verses 11 through 16 that this growth process is at the heart of what Paul sees in terms of unity, and we'll come back to that in a later segment. Unity also does not mean a polite ignoring of differences. Again, in the passages I cited already, Paul is recognizing differences by gender, race, class, and religious practice. In Revelation 7-9, there's differences in heaven. That's not the deal. It's not ignoring the differences, but being unified despite differences. And it does not imply needing to force people to conform on cultural norms and in gray areas. The church is a salad bowl. A lot of times America is described as a melting pot, but the church is not a melting pot where we lose our identity. We still remain separate pieces within the salad bowl. We are Christ-like more than we are little Christ. Now let's contrast biblical unity with other forms of unity. So this is not the world's version of unity. For example, in mobs or what is modeled in Genesis 11 with Babel's pride and independence. A lot of times we see unity that's unfortunate in politics or with cancel culture or other cultural trends. Many times it results or requires oppression, if not the government, then from the market or cultural pressures which enforce society's version of unity, usually a majority over a minority. We can also contrast the church's biblical unity with the world's usual disunity. Think of race as an opportunity here. Society messes it up so badly, the church often doesn't do a whole lot better, but it's certainly a tremendous opportunity for us to distance and difference ourselves from the world's mishandling of those differences. Or think about class and gender as well. In the church, we have things like songs and worship style, and that can cause all kinds of trouble with disunity that looks a lot like what the world often gives us. But again, as the church, we've got to do better. And when we do, it's an amazing testimony in the face of the usual disunity in the world. First Peter 2.9, Peter refers to the church as a holy nation 
And so we have the opportunity to do nationhood right within the church. Back to Genesis in chapter 3, God and man are split. In Genesis 4, man and man are split as Cain kills Abel. And five generations later, Lamech is singing a terrible song in chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. The world doesn't know how to do unity very well. In fact, we've seen the opposite of that here in Ephesians 2, the vertical and horizontal grace first getting right with God and then getting right with other people, even over the Jew-Gentile divide that Paul has written about so eloquently. It's from the cross where both broken relationships are reconciled with God and with man. The other potential counterfeit is improper unity when there's not sufficient truth and purity, which is why he's going to pick up that topic after this one in chapter 4, verse 17 and following. So there are some interesting trade-offs here. We'll talk more about that later. But unity is not for its own sake. It's unity in the context of the purity that Paul will describe later. The last introductory topic to cover here is why is unity first and why does Paul spend so much space on it? 15 verses. It implies it's important and foundational, but let's explore that. First, consider the original cost of unity, as Paul has described in Ephesians 2 and 3 with what he's called the mystery. It's the blood and the cross of Christ. A huge price was paid for this. Second, it demonstrates the Trinity to the world. Each supports the other without rivalry. God is in three persons, and that's very different from, say, the God of Islam. In fact, Islam has a terrific problem with the Trinity and views it as a heresy, but God is presented as a, as a Trinity from the moment of creation. Third, it's practically more attractive and effective when we do unity well. There's so much at stake here. Think of Psalm 133.1, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. So the practice of unity is a bit of a spiritual discipline for us as individuals and as a church. I remember Philip Johnson calling for unity in the old earth, young earth debate back in the day when we were debating on evolution and the young earthers would be tearing into the old earthers and the old earthers would take pokes at the young earthers and they have a common enemy that's much more important and that's the idea that evolution could somehow be a comprehensive uh, narrative for the origins and development of life. And Philip Johnson said, let's unify against that. It's going to be much more effective instead of fighting each other. I think the bottom line here is the importance of unity to God's reputation and our witness in the world. The Great Commission, if that's what chapter 4 verse 1 is that Paul has given us here, or certainly as it's echoed in the Gospels and early in the book of Acts, we have many things to do and it relies on the great cohesion. The Great Commission relies on the great cohesion and that's unity. And we see this in the ministry of Jesus, the last stuff he talks about is unity. John 13, verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And then at the end of his dissertation to the disciples in John 17, verses 20 through 23, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Unity is at the heart of our theology. 
My pastor in Texas used to talk about this all the time, and he had two examples that I've got in my notes. One is from the Moravians, who are in the 17th century. You can Google von Zinzendorf. And he gathered the persecuted from various places. They had 70 people, but it almost fell apart early on because of the differences they had. And he told them to fast, pray, and to read First John for a week to set aside their minor differences. And they ended up sending out 2,000 missionaries over 150 years, what is known as a Moravian Pentecost. And then a really cool story about John Wesley and George Whitfield, who were friends, but also divided over the issues of predestination and free will, Calvinism and Arminianism. And they became friends again after battling for some time. And Whitfield died, and one of Wesley's followers asked him whether he would see Whitfield in heaven. And often the followers of a, of a division are the worst. They don't handle it nearly as well as the dividers do or the people that have the disagreement. And Wesley said, no, I won't get to see Whitfield in heaven because he's going to be so much nearer the glory of God than I am that I won't get to see him. And what a beautiful answer to put the follower in his place that the divisions we have over doctrinal issues, even important doctrinal issues are not worth division at the level of hating fellow Christians, causing turmoil, and the like. What a beautiful story. All right, it's time to take a break. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me. Questions and comments are welcome on my Facebook. Previous episodes are available through podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and so on. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Ephesians 4, starting into Paul's discussion of unity. In the last segment, we talked about a definition for unity, what it is and what it is not. We also got into a discussion of its importance, why it's listed first here, gets so much time from Paul, and why Jesus spends so much time on it at the end of his discourse to the disciples in John 13 through 17. We're not going to develop all of this discussion, but it runs from verses 2 to 16, and I want to break it down for you in a way that might be helpful Verses 2 and 3, which we'll talk about in this segment, are on the preservation and development of unity, our character, our practices, the attitudes and actions that help with that. In verses 3 through 6, we have the basis of unity, and that's the unity of God in Trinitarian community. Verses 7 through 12 is the diversity of unity, the gifts and offices is the particular angle that Paul is going to pursue here. And then finally, the purpose and fruit of unity the idea of growth, maturity, and ministry. Ironically, unity involves growing and changing, maturing. And the changing is another challenge that can come with preserving unity. But we'll talk about that later. All right, let's read verses 2 and 3. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. In these verses, there are three attitudes to pursue and two actions. There are also two words that give more flavor, the word completely toward the beginning of verse 2, and the word every at the beginning of verse 3. Be completely humble and gentle and make every effort. Paul's certainly trying to give it more weight as he describes this important ideal of unity. As for the attitudes, the first is lowliness of mind or humility. Certainly the classic passage on this is Philippians 2 verses 3 through 7. I'll leave that to your reading, but I do want to hit Romans 12, 3. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, 
but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. The opposite of humility is pride, and that's probably the ultimate unity destroyer. It's not an attitude of service, but pride is an attitude of me, me, me. And me, me, me doesn't work very well with us, us, us. I think related to this, you have the idea of empathy as we practice humility. A lot of that's rooted in empathy, and so we need to grow in that as well. Second attitude Paul mentions here is gentleness or meekness. Favorite verse here is Galatians 6.1, you who are spiritual should restore a sinner gently. And it suggests having one's emotions under control. Doesn't mean having no passion, but it certainly doesn't mean not being under control either being angry appropriately and at the right times and things. We'll talk about that in Ephesians 4.26. But it doesn't mean weakness or doormats either. The word here is used of domesticated animals in a handful of times throughout the scripture. So it's not weakness, it's meekness and the differences there. In the context of unity, I think we're particularly interested in how meekness connects to an alluring attitude, seeking to persuade others rather than forcing them or manipulating them. Or more broadly, in our interpersonal communications, it underlines the occasional need to be right. Of course, it's important to be right, but that doesn't mean you have to always say it. And even if you are right, there's still a burden on you to say it properly. It's not just what you say, but how you say it. And then the third attitude is long-suffering or patience. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, be patient with everyone. 1 Corinthians 13.4, love is patient. In 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. The idea here is to be long of fuse, as in the fuse on an explosive. Never give up, you persevere, you endure to the end even in adversity and with irritating people, long-suffering and patience. In this regard, patience has been described as the ability to put up with people we'd like to put down. And that takes us to the actions then that Paul talks about here, bearing with each other in love, putting up with them, enduring. It's a mutual tolerance, not always agreeing, but getting along, agreeing to disagree and the like. I really like this because it lowers the bar quite a bit that the goal is not for all of us to be best friends. That's not possible for lots of reasons. It's not even that I particularly enjoy being with you. There are some people where bearing with them is sufficient, and that's totally fine. Maybe it's personality quirks. Maybe it's differences in politics or sporting team pursuits, style of worship. Whatever it is, it's working through those, bearing with each other in love. A lot of realism here, right? This is not that unity equals intimacy or unanimity. Back to our conversation in the previous segment, there's something else going on here. It's getting along despite the difference. And then finally, make every effort to keep and protect the unity. The New English Bible says to spare no effort. And the Greek term here implies an eagerness to do this. Romans 12, 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Hebrews 12, 14, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. And this is quite challenging. It's often difficult. So we consider the importance of working hard and smart on these things. Don't just keep taking the same approach to difficult situations like this and be willing to sacrifice. The sacrifice may not be necessary, but the heart behind a willingness to sacrifice is also essential to effective unity. 
So combining love as an action, not a mere sentiment, making every effort, and then the bond of peace here in verse 3 takes us to what's required for unity. Colossians three twelve through 15, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace, and be thankful. It requires effort and the right attitudes and actions, but it's worth it. Let's work for unity in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.